Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up and making things happen. Love talking to creative folks about what they do. And don't you love how homespun the word folks is? How small town and charming it is? Um, I am in Palm Springs right now with some friends for my friend Brett's birthday. But I wanted to bring you part two of the Derek Hartley podcast because I know the Derek fans out there are clamoring. Um, we get into some fun observation deck stuff and break down the Sirius XM firing uh, moment by moment. It's a lot of fun. Before we get to that, I want to uh, give a shout out to Francis Quinlan, who donated to my virtual tip jar, uh, helps me keep the podcast free and pay for some of the expenses that come up. And I really, really appreciate that. If you want to do that, you can go to DennisAnyone.net. There's also lots of other fun things you can see there. All the podcasts are um, archived and there's some fun pictures and so forth. So uh, like Dennis, anyone on Facebook? I would love that. And um, without any further ado, here is part two of Derek Hartley. You moved around a lot as a kid, didn't you? I did. How do you think that affected your personality? Does it make you easy, easy to talk to people? Or does it make you a good talker? Um, uh, well, I don't know about that. It certainly made it easier for me to deal with change in life. I think more than anything else. Because I was never good at making friends. My sister, Tiffany was always really social. We were we drove from Northern California down to Baja, Mexico when we were kids. And we stopped in like Big Sur, like the beach. And I was like making a sandcastle and my sister ran off down the beach. She was whatever, four. And she came back holding some girl's friend. This is Susie. We're best friends now. Like, that's how she was. Like, we would just be in some strange place. And I would be alone doing, reading a book or, right. you know, in my own world. And then my sister would be making friends with everybody. And so, you know, when you have siblings, like, one of you just naturally does one thing better than the other. She's just better at making friends and meeting people and being social. I was never social. I always just wanted to sit in my room and read a book, be quiet. And, uh, but moving, having to go to a different school all the time, I mean, there were some, there was one year when I was in seventh grade, I went to three different schools. And so, I, I mean, at a certain point I stopped trying to make friends cause I was never very good at it. And then we would move away anyway. And that that got demoralizing. Uh, but what I've discovered, like when I decided I hated living in Los Angeles, which I hated very much, I didn't feel trapped like I had to stay there because I had moved so much as a kid it's like it's no big deal to move and you I remember move, you, you, live in you had place, your Green you make... Acres little chapter where you moved to a farm I did in what state Michigan I yes. bought a farm in Michigan you bought a farm in Michigan yeah but and I did you were in New York and with, the, yeah. I, well I my grandmother my mother was adopted and then she met her mother when I was like 14 and then we moved to Southern California closer to where my grandmother lived and then my grandmother retired, and she wanted to live where she had grown up in Michigan, and so she moved there. And we had gotten very close, and she was moving away. And she does the same thing that everybody does when they move. Hey, you know what's great? Living near me. And so um, I was working at AOL, and I knew that time was coming to an end, and the stock split four times. I didn't work there very long, but... Like, I made more money than I had ever made. And it wasn't like I became a millionaire or anything. I didn't make that much money. But, like, I I made a leap forward financially by working at AOL. You know, I got to skip a step. 
And so before I worked at AOL, I never would have been able to afford a down payment on a house. Like that was never going to happen. But then I had stock options and suddenly I had like a pot of money. And so I, you know, I decided, you know what, I'm going to leave AOL. I have a little money. I don't have to work right away. And so I bought a farm down the street from my grandmother in Michigan, paid cash. I was going to do like a 50% down and a 50% mortgage. And the mortgage company was like, but you don't have a job. And what are you going to do? And how is this going to work? And I was like, all right, well, I'll just pay cash. I mean, let me tell you something. It doesn't cost much to buy a house in Michigan. So don't be like, oh my God, Derek made so much money. It wasn't that much money. But it was enough to, in the middle of nowhere to buy a house. And, and it so, had a farm. By farm, what did you mean? Were there animals? It was a three-acre horse farm. I didn't have a horse, but it had a barn and a paddock and What's the most else. farm thing that you did on that thing <laughs> that we can't imagine you doing, but yet you kind of crushed it? There was, uh, when I bought the house, the cat had given birth to a bunch of kittens and left them in the barn. So, like, my house came with barn cats. And I didn't want a cat. I certainly, I mean, I moved to the middle of nowhere. Now I'm going to be like the gay guy who lives alone with five cats. Like, how embarrassing. But I fed the cats in the barn. So I thought, well, you know, they're, they live outside. It's nice. Yeah, I wanted me to let them starve. And they were kittens. They had been abandoned. One day I went outside to um, feed the kittens. And I came in there and they were ripped to shreds. They were just kitten pieces. Oh my God, like dude. legs. Just legs oh my and God. tails. Oh my God. And I, like, scooped them up and buried them in the yard. And it was one of those things where I was like... Not a kitten survived. Oh, one kitten survived. Okay. And, uh, and then I think he got hit by a car. I don't remember. It lived outside. Like, cats outside don't live very long. They have terrible lives. But I, like, buried kitten parts in the yard with my bare hands. Like, wow. and but, it was, <laughs> but I had this revelation while I was doing it where I was like, you know what? The world doesn't care that you're gay. Like, you're, whoever you are in the world, whatever your identity is, the world doesn't care. Like, it's meaningless to the get existence of our planet. It is worthless to get it hung up in how tall you are or how you look or what your sexuality Like, all those things are totally meaningless when you have to scoop up kitten parts and bury them in the yard. Like, there's some parts of life that just are not about you. You just gotta go with it. Um, well, I love that kitten part <laughs> image. I'm gonna treasure it. You picked some movies, some questions from the observation deck. Yes, I listen to the Dennis Anyone podcast. Okay. Because my my commute now, I have to commute by car. Before, I would commute on the train. Okay. Which is the only reason that I wrote books, because it was like, I'm stuck here. Right. And I have terrible attention. Well, you would write on the train? I would write on the train. Wow. And that's how I was able to write two type. books. Yeah. Okay. So I've been, I've been very slowly writing anything ever since, but I've not been on the train. But I, my drive from my house to the studio now is an hour and 15 minutes. Sometimes if I fast, an hour and four, but it is just about the length of the Dennis Anyone podcast. Oh, that's So nice. usually, if it works out just right, door to door, I hear the whole podcast. Oh, nice. So yeah, so it's perfect for me. It. So once a week, I'm not listening to myself. Because I do, I listen, and then I come in the next day with notes. Romaine never listens to our show, it makes her furious. But one day a week, 
I trick myself. I listen to you, Dennis. I appreciate it. So yes, when you I listen was... to yourself, what do you? What do you, after all this time do you think? Gosh, I should I should have followed up with that question. Or do you, do you have notes for yourself? Yes, but I I have a feeling. Uh, we had an intern who worked on our show, and he's like, "What did?" Because he and then he got hired. He's like, "Well, what what final advice do you have for me?" And I said, "The moment you think you know how to do your job is the moment you suck." Like, the people who, like, I got it all together, they're overly confident, the, they start to slip up. They start to do a crappy job. And so, to me, it's always been about, like, you always have to think, there's something new I can learn about my job. There's always something new. There, you know, I, you can't let the quality slip. You take it very seriously. I take it very seriously. I take my job very seriously. And so, I listen to the show and, like, well, what was good? What wasn't good? And sometimes, like, we'll do the show. We did a show last week, and I got in the car, and I was like, well, that sucked, and drove away. Because, you know, sometimes you do a show, and you think, that was a great show. And nobody else agrees with you. And then other times, you're like, it just wasn't there. Right. Because sometimes you're like, the energy is there, it's not there, you feel it, you don't feel it. Right. And some days, you're just like, well, that wasn't it. And then all these people were to be like, oh, that was the best show. It's like, really? You have terrible taste. Because that show sucked. So, (laughs) But you you know, but you do... Listen and, but and, then I listen. I'm like, well, maybe they heard something I didn't hear. Yeah. But most of the time, it's me being critical. Should have been tighter on that call. That story was rambling. He never got to the real story about Trump. Whatever it is, you right. know, like I'm you always never went back to the, yeah, the original thing. You started your thing and you never finished. Your what thought. was your most awkward interview? The one where you're like, oh fuck, this oh, is horrible, God. and it's going on forever. Well, I've told this before. The worst was Amy Sedaris, and it is only half her fault. I mean, I had a rough interview with Larry Flint, and that was just because he has trouble speaking. He was shot. And so he's not great <laughs> on the radio. Although, the You really great... do need the wheelchair to really get the Larry Flint. Experience. Well, I mean, it's hard. Like, he has a very slurred speech. Yeah. And so it's, it's, uh, it's okay on TV, because you can see him, and you can see his lips kind of moving or whatever. But, like, on the radio, you have a hard time hearing, and, like, it's hard to follow. And so I had to cut him short, but... The best thing that Larry Flint said was, he was talking about Ann Coulter, and he said, she's a loose woman. She's what we would call a loose woman. And I, which I thought was a strange expression from Larry Flint. The editor of Hustler. editor of Hustler. But then I realized, like, that's the meanest thing he can say about someone. She's a loose woman. Like, it was so old school, school, like, nastiness. But anyway, so Amy Sedaris... Romaine was out for some reason. I only thought of it because Romaine was out during the Larry Flynn thing, too. But anyway, Romaine was out, and I didn't have a co-host. And it's hosting a show alone is hard. It's much easier, especially if you're used to doing it with another person. Doing it alone, you're failing a lot of time. And the listeners would know that I would get panicky in having to do it alone. And I would be desperate for them to call so they wouldn't call. Because they liked me in free fall. That's what they liked. <laughs> and so... They would do it just to fuck yeah, with me. Yeah, just you. to fuck with me. And it's like, you're monsters! And so then I'm like melting down on the radio. You're going to hate me! And then they loved it. They couldn't get enough. But anyway, so Romaine was not there. And we were supposed to have Amy Sedaris on for her, like, home entertaining book that she did yeah, a couple of years that. ago. Yeah, So it was going to be a phoner. And we went to the interview and she didn't call. Or we called and she didn't answer. And our producer called the publicist. It's like, oh, she forgot or whatever it was. But the thing was, we didn't have a co-host. I didn't have a co-host. She was our only guest. Like, I needed it. And the publicist owed 
our producer a favor. Like, we had done some favor for them, for Amy Sedaris' publicist. And so basically he strong-armed her. It was like, you owe us. Get Amy Sedaris on this show. Right. So Amy, Dar- Amy Sedaris, like, gets cajoled by the publicist into doing this interview that she clearly was not prepared to do or interested in doing, for whatever reason. And then all of the answers were no. Why would you ask me that? Like, it was... She was Horrible. not having it. She was not having it. It was brutal. And, I mean, I learned a valuable lesson, which is, if the guest doesn't want to be there, let them go. Like, right. it's not worth filling the time because you need the time filled. Fill it with something else. Right. If the caller doesn't want to be there, if the guest doesn't want to be there, if the host doesn't want to be there, let them go. Because it's not, it's just not worth it. And so that's not Amy Sedaris' fault. Like, I totally own, that was our own desperation. I don't hold it against her. Um, I do. <laughs> Why? I she just didn't want to be there. Yeah, but but if you're there, I don't know. I I don't know. I do a little bit. Well, and part you're of it promoting was promoting her book, yeah. right? But part of it was like I really like Amy Sedaris, right? Like I and I wanted to like her. I think it's right. it's more disappointing because she was somebody that I was a fan of that I you know that I really cared to have on the right. show. But it was also, I mean, in these kinds of things, you just have to learn. Dolly Parton would have rallied. Oh, Reba would have rallied. You know, I saw Dolly in, but Dolly's doing a tour, and I am just telling you right now, I don't care if you have to take the money out of your mattress, go and see Dolly. She gives one hell of a show. Saw her in New York at Radio City Music Hall, and she delivered, yeah. like delivered. She played every instrument on, on that stage. She told all the old jokes you want. And not only that, but she was doing her patter. And she goes, you know, I was on my way over here today listening to the country station here. And then she goes, wait a minute, you guys don't have a country station anymore, do you? And, of course, the crowd's like, no. She goes, it doesn't work. It doesn't matter. The story's great anyway. So then she goes right back into her patter. Love it. And the crowd just ate it up. I mean, it was she's, so, she's the best celebrity that there is. Yeah. Now... Uh, for a while there, back in the OQ days, you would have your odd adult film star on there. Yes, many of them are. Who were, did you have the biggest hots for that came on your show? Well, I mean, was I there... slept with one of them. Yes. Like, so, Which yeah, one? that one. His name was Bobby Rail. He did not make a lot of movies. Right. But I had sort I of a... remember that story. Yeah. Well, he had just gotten out of prison for attempted murder. Yeah. And then he wanted to move in with me. And I was like, well... If I didn't already have a roommate where that would be a consideration, it was like, you know, if you go crazy and murder me, it's just me. Like, that's all right. You know what? I've taken my chances sleeping with a hot felon. But for my roommate, it's not, that's not his thing. Like, he, no, he exactly. didn't ask for that. No, yeah. exactly. But anyway, that was, that, that was, that was fun. And so probably him. I, I bring that up because I, I did the mismatch game recently. And when there's a hot guy contestant... Or a cute guy, somebody that yeah. I, 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 I have no poker face. I literally blush. I, it is not. It is not. It is obvious to anyone within four hundred yards of the theater. And I was just wondering if you've ever had those well, kind I of mean, people in there. Uh, I mean, the hottest of them is Dean Phoenix. Yeah, and he is just. But he's also just the sweetest, nicest, loveliest person. Right, and hot as the sun. I mean, there are certain. There are certain people that are hot on TV, and then you meet them in person, and you're like, they're okay. And then other people that you see in person, and it's like staring into the sun. 
And then you see them on TV and you're like, oh, I mean, they're very attractive, but it's not the same. same. Like when I saw Brad Pitt in person, I just, like, I was at the Golden Globes and Brad Pitt was across from me and Gwyneth Paltrow was between us. If she had not been between us, I would have tried to lick his neck. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And I understand, like, he's dressed up, it's the Golden Globes, whatever. But, like, more than other people, he was sticking out. Right. So sometimes that happens. But for me, probably Dean Phoenix, because he was just just lovely all over. But yeah. I have this weird thing. Once I've like met these porn stars and hung out with them and everything, like I could right. never watch them in their videos. It's too weird. Yeah, or sometimes you'd get a, a you know a regular actor, or a, a regular star in there. Like, yeah, you know, if, your Joe Manganiello or whoever it is. Uh, uh. Yeah, I'm trying to think who was hot like that. Uh, the guy who is on... Ugh, whatever. He's on Masters of Sex. He was in um, the Tom Ford movie. This is not going to be helpful to anyone. See, this is the worst part about doing this job I as you get older. Masters it's like, of sex. I um, can't, like, I'm not quick with people's okay. names. No worries. Uh, like I used to be. But anyway, you know him. He's blonde and tall. He's oh, like, yeah, I know who he is. The yeah. tall blonde guy from Yeah, he uh, plays Masters a doctor. He, the, he had uh, sex with Ange- uh, Alice Janney. Right. Yeah, he's yeah. yummy. Yeah. yeah. All right. And he was, like, strapping and lovely good yeah. looking when we had him on our show there we go alright observation deck what's your favorite bad movie uh <laughs> this is where I was like Dennis I've got an hour um I like this is t- this is tough for me because I've seen a lot of crappy movies and the problem is I saw a lot of crappy movies as a kid right that I'm emotionally attached to let's say The Cat from Outer Space now we all know The Cat from Outer Space is a terrible movie like it has to be Sandy Duncan's in it. There's a talking cat from outer space. It needs gold bars to pilot its station. I've never station. seen it. It's great. Do you love Ken it? Barry. Uh, I mean, it's not like, oh, I can't wait to watch it again. But, I mean, I have an emotional attachment to it. I mean, Is it, it your kid, favorite, you think? Uh, no, my favorite, like, really bad movie, like, even I don't want to sit and watch it, but I'll watch it anyway, is Xanadu. Like, oh, that it's is amazing. a. That is an amazingly terrible movie. And not in a way that, like, Mommy Dearest is so bad, it's good, bad. Because Mommy Dearest is a great, is actually a great movie. It's just not the great movie it thought it was. Like, right. It thought it was, like, an Oscar-winning, like, a serious movie. Yeah, when I watched it, I was like, I don't know how else Faye Dunaway was supposed to play that part. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, she... What makes it bad good is how committed they are. There was just something about the tone. They just... In other words, they, they didn't... It wasn't because they did a bad job. Right. They they did it too good or something. It was all too good. Yeah, my mother said that in Mommy Dearest, Faye Dunaway is more like Joan Crawford than Joan Crawford. Right. Like, that's what's wrong with the movie is... She's so Joan Crawford, you don't even remember what Joan Crawford is anymore. Right. Like, she's Joan Crawford now. Like, she has supplanted in your mind who Joan Crawford is. Uh, But that movie, like, you know, I would talk about it on the show all the time, and, I mean, I love Mommy Dearest. It's a glorious movie. And part of it is that they made it as a serious movie. So the production values are all there. Right. Faye Dunaway's at the top of her game. Like, it's all the best things, and it's just all so wrong. But it's perfect. But, um, so we were talking about it all the time, and we had a producer, Dan, who was straight on our show, and he's like, well... Dangling Dan. Dangling Dan. And I had brought in the DVD so they could pull audio clips from the movie to use in the imaging on the show, like the intros and outros. 
And he's like, well, maybe there's something that Derek missed. I'll watch the movie and see if there's anything else that I can use. He watches the movie, comes back on Monday, and he goes, you know that's a movie about child abuse, right? <laughs> and I was like, well, I mean, I guess you could look at it that way. <laughs> but it's not, you know, we've been sitting here laughing and having a good time, but, I mean, I guess you could see it as a movie it's about a movie child. About, it's a movie about itself. It's a movie yeah. about what kind of movie it is. Um... Yeah. yeah. So, but Xanadu, but, I've seen it a million times, and I yeah. love it. I love that soundtrack. It has one of the best soundtracks of one of the worst movies ever. It has an incredible soundtrack. Every time I see it, I can't believe how bad the scenes at the record company are. <laughs> they're the ones that really <laughs> stick out. Tuesday's Wednesday. Like, they're awful. Oh, Mr. Artist, like, they're, they're the worst. Yeah. So when Jay's not around, maybe. But uh, our friend Paul has a great description of the final scene in the movie, which is really, they just throw everything. Like, everything is in there. What's great about Xanadu is that it is the defining line between the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. Like, everything about that movie, it is saying goodbye to the 70s and hello to the 80s. The 80s were about shoulder pads and the return of the 1940s, big band, like that whole thing. Reagan was a return to, like, the post-World War II America, right? Right. And Xanadu was really built out of the 70s. Roller Disco and Olivia Newton-John. Like, it's the past like, moving directly into the future. And you can see the 70s ending and the 80s beginning like, as the movie is going on. But our friend Paul says that in the final scene where it's Roller Disco and there's like a tightrope act and there's... Well, it's the craziest, nuttiest nonsense. But... Um, he says that Olivia Newton-John dances through the final scene with this look on her face that says, my career will survive this, and all the rest of you are gone. And if you watch it, just thinking of, like, she's just dancing to her car to get, yeah. to get on with her life, yeah. that it makes it even more delicious. I, I can't get enough of it. Um, how did you learn the facts of life? Uh, my mother printed out... A safer sex guide and put it on the refrigerator. So every time, you know, you'd go to the fridge, like, let me get a snack, rimming and fisting. <laughs> How old were you? I mean, this is when we were teenagers. I think my mother was like, you know what? I'll leave this right here. <laughs> It was very practical. We don't have to have any awkward conversations right. about anything. I'm going to put the facts right in front of you. Right. Do with it what you like. Did you ever comment, hey, mom, what's up with this? Or oh, no, no. I mean, she specifically is like, here's the safer sex guide. I'm going to put it here on the fridge. It was sort of like, here's the chore list, kids. I'm putting it here. So you learned about safe, safer sex the same time you learned about sex, in essence, from your parents. Yes. I mean, you probably yeah, in that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was, because I heard of the on your podcast, you know, other people and their encounters with the Penthouse Forum. I think that, um, I also, my dad was a subscriber to Playboy, and I always liked Playboy's year in movies, because that was where you would see a naked guy. Um, but I think that, like, a lot of gay people growing up had the same thing, of like, well, you would occasionally see a gay something, or a bi something, in, like, slivers of it here and there, and sort yeah. of straight things. And that you were always just sort of looking for those nuggets. But I think the most practical advice was definitely the the 
on the fridge. thing on the fridge. Yeah, that's good. That was it. What's the worst thing that's ever gone wrong for you on stage? Uh, that was the story I told in Charlotte, North Carolina. I want to make sure we got that in. Yeah, that was literally the worst. Like standing up on stage, not knowing how long you'd have to be there. Yeah, that was brutal and unbearable. Bang, bang. And especially for somebody who doesn't like being in front of a crowd. Although, like, what time we were doing a pride event, and I was in front of whatever a couple of thousand people. Because sometimes, you know, if you're introducing a big act, like, you, you actually get a crowd. Most of the time when you're emceeing at a Pride, you're in front of, like, four people, right. and one of them is drunk and passed out. The lesbians are brutal. One of the, you know, a lesbian, they all drink early. I have a theory about it, that the lesbians drink at Pride early because they know they're going to bed early anyway. But the gay guys, they pace themselves because they know they're going to go out that night. Like, they may not meet somebody at Pride, so they have to know that they're going to go to whatever the club is that night and meet somebody if being shirtless at Pride didn't work out for them. But the lesbians, they know, day drink your beer all you want because we'll all be in bed at nine. <laughs> and so the lesbians, though, invariably, a lesbian will have too much beer and it'll be too hot and she'll pass out. And the other lesbians will just step over her and walk away. It's the dinosaur weekend in a nutshell. Yeah, and then, like, we would be doing up on stage, and there'd just be, like, a woman passed out in front of the stage. It's like, I know her friends just left her there. Because they're heartless. These lesbians are heartless. You think gay guys are heartless. The lesbians, you think she's your friend. But you looked at her girlfriend once, and she is just waiting. It's been three years, but she'll get her revenge. And you will wake up in a dusty patch of Phoenix Pride, drunk and sunburned on one side because she left you there. Yeah. She doesn't give a fuck. No. What was your most glamorous night? Um, I worked at Sony Pictures in the 90s and I worked in special events and we did parties for the Oscars and for the Golden Globes. And the Oscar party, I didn't get to go to the Oscars. We had a party at Dre's and, um, uh, Angela Bassett and Courtney B. Vance were there. Uh, The most memorable person there though, though, at our party was Anna Nicole Smith because she came in a powder blue satin teen muumuu. It was just hideous, but it was the party pick from Oscar night. Like, it was everywhere. Because she was in her heavier period, and it just was like... She looked like something that got away at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And so, like, that was all over the place. But at one point, I was trying to get inside, and she was, like, dry-humping the door for a photographer. And I was like, we need this door open for... It's a fire door. Like, you have to get out of the way. Um, But, I mean, that was somewhat glamorous. But the more glamorous one was the Golden Globes, because I got to be at the Golden Globes, and... Every star you've ever seen is at the Golden Globes because it's TV and movies. So everyone is there. It's a ridiculous star-spotting thing. And we did a party upstairs. And did you have one-on-one interaction with anybody? A Tom Cruise, yeah. Nicole Kidman, Emma Thompson, Kate Winslet. Yeah. I mean, what was the big movie that year? Uh, it was... This was January of 96... Uh, it was, our movie was Sense and Sensibility, and it was up against Braveheart, but Nicole Kidman won that night for To Die For, Yeah. and Tom Cruise had Mission Impossible coming out in May, so they were, they, like, dropped into our party and then went to the much bigger party that Paramount was doing down the hall. Nice. But this was, like, Kate Winslet pre-Titanic. Yeah, Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. What, you said that you don't like L.A., or you didn't like L.A., what oh, I still you, don't. Why it's don't hard. you like it? What do you hate about it? 
Well, where, where to start? Dennis, we're at the end of the podcast. How can I, I, I you know, I'll have to come back well, here and like, all the things I hate about there's it. There's the obvious things about the traffic and all this stuff, but there's something about it that must Which, make you feel a certain way. The traffic is horrendous. Uh, a lot of the people are horrendous. Um, I don't, I'm not a sun person. I'm not a beach person. When I lived here, people all the time were like, why aren't you happy? Why aren't, why don't you smile more? It's like, why can't I just be myself? Like, I was too dark and angry for L.A. So it was and a then sensibility to, thing. Yeah, it was a sensibility thing. And then I went to New York, and everyone in New York is like, you're so L.A. Like, because I want to wear shorts. And, right. you know, I'm not super intense about some things. Like, I don't care about whatever. And so... Because you do wear your shorts is like your trend, oh my God, trademark. Love, yeah. Do you own pants? I do. Yeah. And I wear them in New York. It's wintertime. I wear yeah. them most of the time. Yeah. Like, I've worn shorts at the Sundance Film Festival. But I grew up in winter, so I'm not, you know, right. I, can, I can do that thing that bros do sometimes of, like, I'm barely wearing anything and it's snowing outside. I have a picture of us from the Sundance Film Festival, and I have a bald, I shaved my head for a magazine article. Right. Uh, that's the kind of rider I, that's how kind of commitment I have. You're right there, Dennis. What kind of driver are you? Terrible. I'm a terrible driver. But it's a comes from being in L.A. There are a lot of horrible drivers here because yeah. it is a necessity to drive. And, you know, I moved to New York, so I don't drive very much, and it doesn't make you a better driver, like, not driving very often. Yeah. But I haven't had a ticket or an accident, you know, knock on wood, in 15 years. That's pretty good. So I'm, not, so I'm not bad. Yeah. You know. What's your best celebrity sighting? Um, <laughs> I have a bunch of them, because I have sighted, I've seen a lot of celebrities, but I have two stories in particular I want to tell. One... I was driving, I used to live in West Hollywood West, and Dennis is going to know this story right away, and I was driving up, um, whatever that street is, towards West Hollywood, near, uh, Melrose, where the Ivy is. Anyway, so I was driving up... Robertson. I was driving up Robertson, and I see Dennis, and I had just come from whatever the pharmacy, picking up a roll of film. Dennis had had a birthday party or something, and I had taken a bunch of pictures, and they, I thought they were great. So I had double prints in my car, and then I see Dennis, and Dennis didn't live anywhere near me, and there he was walking my neighborhood, and I, like, come to a screeching car on the sidewalk, stop in front of him, and leap out of the car, and I'm like, Dennis, I can't believe you're here, oh my god, it's the perfect time that I'm seeing you, and, uh... Um, and I have to show you these, uh, I have to show you these pictures, and, and Dennis goes, um, uh, uh, Jonathan, this is my friend Derek, Derek, this is Jonathan Check. or this is Jonathan, and he's like, hi, it's nice, to, uh, hi, I'm Jonathan Check. and I said, oh, I know exactly who you are, and I'm madly in love with you, but I don't care, because I have pictures, <laughs> and then I whip out these photos, and I just, like, making Jonathan Sheck look at all of these photos from... And he's like, oh, isn't that nice? Like, trying to be nice about, like, the double prints that I had from Dennis's party. But, you know, that was... That was that pretty was random. That, that, was, I that think, was a random one, yeah. I think we were going to a Tim Burton event. Yes, it was a Tim Burton thing. art was, thing. In, yes. Yeah. Next to Newsroom. I had interviewed yes. him a couple of times, and we went to that thing together. Yeah. I liked him. Yeah, I liked him too. He's nice. I liked um, him. Yeah, I felt like he. I, yeah, I interviewed him a few times, and I, I think he felt like I, I got him, and that he felt 
like I was safe with him. I think he was in that place of like he knew he got a lot of mileage for the way he looked, but he, he I think he wanted to be taken seriously. Yeah, but he sure. also wanted to own. You know what I mean? It wasn't just like I'm not. I, he was. You know, it's it's not surprising to me that he's not really in the business anymore. I'm not, or he doesn't pop up as much anymore. Right. I don't know if he's so, made for it. All right. Anyway, so the, the other the other story is, um, I didn't watch Brothers and Sisters, but Romaine did, and we got to interview Luke McFarlane, and Romaine was not there. Like she couldn't be there. So like, well, I'll go in and I'll interview him. I don't watch the show, but. I can have a few bars. So I go in, and he is just... Because sometimes when you have to interview people, you interview yeah, yeah, people yeah. like, I don't yeah. watch your stuff or whatever. I can I can make it work. So I went and interview Luke McFarlane, and he is the hottest man. He is so good looking. And uh, so I interviewed him, and I just thought he was super charming, and he was so good looking. And he was in New York... Like, he was promoting, like, he was doing Brothers, Sisters, whatever. He had just finished doing it. But he was there because he was doing The Normal Heart on Broadway. And he's like, oh, are you coming to see the show? And I'm like, oh, you bet. I never went to see anything on Broadway. And I was like, oh, yeah, you bet. It wasn't going. But he was uh, just an absolute dreamboat. And, uh, and then I also, like, right around the same, like, within days, I interviewed um, John Benjamin Hickey, who was also in The Normal Heart. And John Benjamin Hickey's husband, uh, uh, Jeffrey Richmond, writes for Modern Family. And when I was when I interviewed John Benjamin Hickey, he's like, "Oh my God, my husband's gonna be so jealous. He listens to you guys all the time. He's super into your show." Blah blah blah. And it was like this weird meta thing, right? And sometimes there would be Hollywood people who, like, you, publicists would sometimes say, "Oh, so and so loves your show," and it's usually crap. Like, they, they, the celebrity has no idea the show that they're going on. Right. But they're buttering you up because they want to get a good interview, right? And so I never would believe it when people would say, oh, they listen to the show. But when John Benjamin Hickey is like, oh, my husband loves your show, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, this is what he likes. And so I was like, oh, okay, that's real. And um, he had played the husband of my friend, Christopher Sieber, on a show called It's All Relative in um, 2003. I remember that show. With the gay dads. With a daughter. Anyway. So, um, and Christopher and his husband, Kevin, had this island, this house on an island on a lake in New Jersey. And they were doing the normal heart all summer long. But they had like a 4th of July party coming up. And I was like, oh, I should invite them. And, uh, and I'll invite Luke McFarlane too because I'd love to see him in a bathing suit. And we can get to know each other. Uh, so anyway, so I go, um, but John Benjamin Hickey is like, oh, are you, uh, are you coming to see the show? I said, yeah, I am. He goes, when are you coming? I'm like, oh, I'm coming on Wednesday. And then, uh, he's like, okay, great. I'll see you then. And then he left and I was like, oh, oh, fuck. Like, I don't have tickets to see the normal heart and I'm not going on Wednesday. So I was like, well, I'll go to a matinee. And then they didn't have a Wednesday matinee. So I came into the city on a Saturday and I go to see it. And, um, I had arranged with the publicist to go backstage so I could like, here I am. I told you I was coming and here I am kind of a thing. Cause you know, I'm such an asshole. Like, I say these kinds of things all the time. Like, oh, sure, I'll be there, and I'm never going to come. So, I'm like, I can't be this person, and, you know, I want him to come to the island. Whatever. 
So I go backstage. To the Did you? Park. Could you invite people to the island? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah it's fine. You could invite people on behalf of Christopher. And well, Kevin. first of all, I mean, they did a sitcom together. I don't think it would have been a problem. Okay. And I mean, there are Broadway people, and it's like, oh, right. there are Broadway people in town because I think when you work on Broadway, you're not always in the same shows with the same people, in, but you're friends with lots of people. You have island know. inviting privileges. Yes, I do. Point. In this case, in that case, I did. Okay. So I get backstage, and. Uh, as I'm coming up the stairs backstage, Luke McFarlane is, like, at the landing, right? It's just like in a movie. Luke McFarlane's at the top of the landing. He's so handsome. And he looks down at me, and I'm walking up the stairs toward him, and he has a big smile on his face, and he goes, Hey, what are you doing here? Because Luke also listened to the show. This was the thing. Luke McFarlane, well, like, he was working on his house, whatever, he was driving, and he would listen to the show. And he was disappointed Romaine wasn't there. So, like, we got along great, and he was super handsome. But so anyway, so he recognized me backstage. He's like, hey, what are you doing here? And I went, I'm not here for you. <laughs> because I didn't want him to think I was stalking him or something. Right. But then it just came off it as came so wrong. nasty. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, God, I'm, like, the worst person alive. Because I... You know, he's a nice, lovely, gracious person, and I freaked out because he was so pretty, and then I was just mean. Yeah. Was that the end of the conversation? It was, but then I... You didn't get to backpedal. No, but then I left a note for him backstage, um, like an apology, because I had meant to invite him to the island, and I never did. Yeah. And so I left him a note backstage, and I was like, look, I'm sorry I said I wasn't there for you. I was visiting John Benjamin Hickey, but I I didn't want you to think I was horrible. Anyway, come to the island. And, um, so I left the note for him and he like left it in his bag. Like he got it coming out of the thing and left it in his messenger bag. And then when he got back to LA, he like found it in his bag and he wrote me a very nice email. I'm sorry. I never like called you or came out of the island or whatever. I just now saw this thing and I, I feel horrible and I'm writing you back. Anyway, so he, everything he's is good. Person. Everything is good. Luke McFarlane is lovely. But, um, I, yeah. He used to work out in the same cool. trainer gym. That, the same gym that I would work out. Oh, really? And uh, he would work out hard. He was like hardcore into the weights. You know what I mean? He was. He was. This, and he could do it on his own. He didn't yeah. need someone to take him through it. He could. He was good. Anyway, he's also an incredible singer too. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, he doesn't. He. I, I want him to pop again. Yeah. I worry. Well, he's on. He's on shows. He's he was, probably on a bunch of shows. That I don't even. know He's about. on this show on PBS called Mercy Street that they put on oh, the yeah. Civil War show after okay. Downton Abbey. And he plays a priest, so you know he's not taking his clothes off. And I tried to watch the show, and it, I'm not into it. And then he's on this sci-fi show, um, and now I don't remember the name of it, but it's actually really good, and I okay. enjoy it very much. It'll okay. be on this summer. What movie have you seen more than any other? Probably uh, it's a. Uh, I mean, I watch a lot of old movies. I like old movies. And there are certain movies, like, if I want a good cry, I'll watch National Velvet. I love a cry. And I can cry in about every other scene in that movie. It's yeah. a great movie. But, um, and then Rear Window. I love Rear Window. But I have probably seen Defending Your Life and Postcards on the Edge more than, like, an outsized number of times. Right. Like, I've seen Star Wars many times. Because, like, when I was a kid, I went to see it, like, 15 times in a row right. in theaters. Like, that kind of thing. I've seen Star Wars a lot. But it's not a, like, go-to. Like, oh, you know what? I haven't watched this in a couple of months. I'm going to pop this in. But Postcards on the Edge. Yeah. And they're both Meryl movies. But Postcards on the Edge and Defending Your Life, for different reasons. But I'm totally into both of those movies. And they're right from the same time period. Yeah. That's probably why. I love kind it. Of early 20s thing. What's your favorite waste of time? I have become obsessed with genealogy research. And I get into these colossal genealogy rabbit holes now. 
I'm actually writing a book on genealogy uh, because I, when I started doing it, there wasn't like a good book out there. So I'm doing the Donna Karen thing. It wasn't in my closet, so I made it. So I've been working on a, I've been working on a, on a book on genealogy research, sort of like 21st century, like how to do it and that kind of thing. Well, but it's I've a big successful. part of Mormonism. So when I was yes. growing up, um, what's the most surprising thing you've learned about your background? I, well, I found a half sister that we didn't know about. Oh, that's um, my dream. My dream is that really? I have some relative that I don't know about who's cool. Maybe my age. Well, I mean, I found all these, like, I have these half-siblings, and I didn't, I mean, I sort of knew, I knew there was, like, two of them out there, and then it turned out there were five. And but that means one of your parents had kids that they didn't tell you about. Yeah. My biological father was, like, a con man in the 60s. Okay. He was Don Draper. He was, like, okay. running around lying to women and sleeping with them and having babies. I see. Okay. Yeah. It was colossal. But the best part was, is that he didn't know his biological father, and as I started doing research... Once I connected with these siblings, they started doing research into his family because none of them knew anything about it. And it turned out he had a brother he didn't know about that I uncovered. So I keep going back and back and back and back. And then there was a rumor that my great-grandfather had killed somebody. And I couldn't find any evidence of that. But his father had gone to prison for the criminally insane. Like, it goes on and on and on. Why do you love it? Um, How does well, it resonate in your life? Well, in some ways... Uh, uh, I mean, it's just, it's interesting to see where parts of your life or your personality are already written in history. You know, when I was a kid growing up, my sister was a natural at gymnastics and my mother was adopted. She didn't know anything about her family. It turned out that, um, uh, her mother had an uncle who was an Olympic gymnast in the 1920 Olympics. And so it's like, oh, my sister came by that naturally. Like that's like in it's our in the, it's in the genes, it's in yeah. our blood. Um, and sometimes the stories are interesting. My family, uh, my mother's family lived in, um, Chicago on DeCoven where the great Chicago fire started in 1871. They had a saloon at the corner of, uh, DeCoven and Des Plaines at 171 DeCoven and the fire started at 137. Like I've been to Chicago. It's like crazy, ridiculously close to where this huge thing in history happened. And so these things are interesting. And, you know, it's kind of neat to see who these people were and what they went through and um, how you got to be here. Because all of the things that they went through had to happen in order for you to take place. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's interesting. That I have a lot cool. of time to fill. What's the worst job you ever had? It was working at the movie studio. You I mean, it was, it was a total case of, you know, if you like sausage, don't see it made. Like, it was... I loved movies. I still love movies. But working in a movie studio just opened my eyes to how the process of making movies and how horrible it is. But also why there are so many bad movies and why people who work in Hollywood are so frustrated with whatever the system and the way that people are. It was just kind of terrible. How long were you there? I was there less than a year. Yeah. But, I mean, I worked in... Motion picture publicity. I worked in special events. So we did movie premieres and the Oscar parties and Golden Globes and presents for stars and that kind of thing. So it was like, it was a fun department to work in because everybody kissed your ass. Like vendors all, were always trying to get their stuff in there and you got to interact with stars a lot, which a lot of people who work in the entertainment business have very tangential 
relationships to celebrity anything. You know, if you're a sound mixer, you're very rarely hanging out with stars. Like, sometimes you are. Like, the guy told a story about, you know, being in a, a sound mixing studio. Room, right, you're in a right living room and, like, yeah. yeah, and then there's a star right next to you. But, you know, most of the t- most people who work in the entertainment industry are not having dinner with Tom Cruise every night. Like, it's just, you're not having that kind of connection with big stars. You have a job to do and you do your job. But we had sort of fun stuff because we had cool gifts to give away. And Did you have an Emma Thompson moment? Because she I did. Sense and sensibility. I just imagine her being like she always is, like funny and down to earth and cool and she everything. Was, she was really lovely. We, uh, at the Golden Globes party, she called her mother from the party, like on a cell phone, called her mother, and then had Kate Winslet talk to her mother. Because I guess when making Sense and Sensibility, Emma Thompson's mother was like, on the set hanging out a lot and I guess had bonded with Kate Winslet and so then Kate Winslet's on the phone with Emma Thompson's mother it was all very cozy and lovely um, and it was a rainy night uh, at the Golden Globes and it was kind of chilly and Emma Thompson didn't have a coat and I offered her my tuxedo jacket like you can wear my jacket because I knew the studio the limo hired by the studio is taking her home like the rented tuxedo jacket will make its way back to Sony Pictures. It's not like I don't think Emma Thompson's good for it. But she she said I was very sweet, but she wouldn't take my jacket. Well, that was really nice of you. Yeah, it was, a, it was a nice it was a nice sweet moment. Emma. It wasn't like that with Nicole Kidman. But um, was she icy? She was icy, but like she was not like super icy. To she was just super icy, just in general. But they she wanted to go to the Paramount party with a bigger party. And Tom Cruise was talking to... I can't remember who he was talking to. He he got into an engaging conversation with somebody at our party. And Nicole Kidman wanted to go to the other party. And so she came out... I was in the hallway. Because there was like a security guy outside the door. And I was in the hallway. Sort of monitoring who was coming in and out. Like, I'm the guy with the clipboard. And I was supposed to walk Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman from the Sony party to the Paramount party. It was down the hall from the suite we were in. And, uh, I'd had an encounter earlier in the day, um, and with, um, oh crap. Now I can't remember his name. Um, the guy who owned the Beverly Hilton hotel who feuded with Trump. Now that we, as we go full circle, I don't know the gay one, Murph Griffin, Murph Griffin. I had an encounter with Murph Griffin earlier in the day, but anyway, Wow. um, but I was there in the hallway, but I, so I knew the layout of the, of the suites that were there and we didn't have the best suite because the studio hadn't been hawed. They weren't sure how sense of sensibility was going to do. And Paramount got like the big, beautiful suite on our floor. And we were in just like a regular two bedroom suite. And, um, uh, so I was supposed to walk them from one part to the other part. And so I was waiting outside in the hallway at the Beverly Hilton Hotel, and Nicole Kidman comes out with her publicist, um, Nicole David, I think her name was. I don't remember. She worked for PMK. And so they come out of the hallway, and Nicole Kidman's ready to go. And she's telling her publicist, also named Nicole, to go in and get Tom Cruise to, like, get out of there to go to the party. And Nicole David says, well, he's your husband. Which did not go over well. So then they, like, see me and the security person there. And they, like, get in more hushed tones. And then a camera crew from God only knows where. Because the Golden Globes, the press comes from everywhere. They popped out of a fire exit somewhere. And they got into the hallway. And before we could get there, 
they had Nicole Kidman on camera and were interviewing her. And of course she's like, oh, hi, yes, I'd love to do this impromptu interview with a hallway with some God only knows Malaysian TV, right? And then eventually Tom Cruise came out and she's like, oh, I have to go, whatever. And then he came out. That was like halfway into their 10-year marriage, probably. Yeah. She was in it. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, who knows? She had just won... Like, the thing that struck me was, you just won a Golden Globe. You know, suck up the moment. And maybe she's like, look, this may be the only Golden Globe I ever win. I want to ring every minute out of this night. You'll be Tom Cruise for the rest of your life. But, like... Yeah. I'm going to be Golden Globe winner Nicole Kidman for a few hours, so let's let's get let's cracking. Let's take the rounds. You know, I'm always trying to find the like good side of these things. And then Tom Cruise was like, whatever, he's very nice. But I found out later, Barbara Walters talked about Tom Cruise on um, The View, and she described like him with other people, like how he when he talks to people, he asks them about them, like what's your name, what do you do, blah blah. And he's always asking people questions, and he does that. Barbara Walters noticed it and asked him about it, and he said he does that because. When people meet him, they don't know what to say. And so he asks them about themselves, and it puts them at ease that they're in the presence of Tom Cruise, and then they can sort of get back out of their head and everything. But, like, he totally did that to me. When we were in the hallway, he's like, oh, do you work at the studio? What do you do? How long have you been there? Do you like it? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was like a short hallway conversation. You got, but he, you got Maverick. I did. I totally got the whole thing. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. Where's the coolest place you've gotten to go for work? Uh... Uh, I, I guess, uh, I got to go to Europe when I was up on, at Planet Out. I didn't have a passport and we got to go on an RSVP gave us like free cruises to go. And I got to go on a cruise. That's amazing. And it was one of those things where it was like, I was young and it was early in my career and I got a free cruise to Europe and that was very cool. And I would not have otherwise gotten a passport. Like, there was no urgency to be getting a passport. And then it's like, well, I have to get one because we're going to go to Europe. And then after that, like, I went to Europe on my own and traveled around the world, did other things. And it sort of opened up world travel for me because I had never done that before. You got you your passport. Yeah. And so it set me on my way. Well, I want you to know this is the longest Dennis anyone that's ever <laughs> happened. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't think of a better guest to to claim that honor. I also want you to know that I don't know if I would be doing this podcast if it weren't for you. And here's the connection. Okay. I started doing radio as a guest host for Sirius. Right. And the reason I did that is because you brought John McMillan to Chevy's. When I used to go to New York, I would tell all my New York friends, "I'm, I'm come to Chevy's. And we can have a dinner, and it's a chance to see people that I might not see otherwise. And you brought John to that dinner. And uh, he reached out to me later when um, Harrison on the Edge was on the air with Doria. And Harrison was going to be gone for a week or whatever. And he, he asked me if I wanted to guest host. And there was something about how I was at the dinner. I'm not sure what. Um, but I'm really grateful for it. And that was, I, I, I was like, I guess I didn't know what I was going to do, but I showed up and I did it and I ended up really loving it. And then I would fill in on different shows. I filled in for you guys a number of times and then I did a lot for Frank. And, but I think that was because of that, that, um, introduction, I think it got me into the radio podcast, whatever world. So thank you for coming to Chevy's. (laughs) El Machino thanks you. I thank you. 
You know, one of the questions I sometimes ask people is, when was the place where you were in the right place at the right time? And that's one of the few that I can think of in my life. Because most of the things that I've gotten, I sort of went for. And this was a sort of related to what I was doing in terms of journalism and interviewing and things like that. But it was sort of a, a little... It wasn't something I went for. It was something that that um, that I was in the right place at the right time, and he saw something in me that thought I could fill in for Harrison for a week. Well, I'm and then Harrison quit. Right. Well, I'm going to take 100% credit for that because in my life, it is almost always that I'm in the right place at the right time. I have always been one of these lucky people who just podcast is over podcast is over <laughs> shutting it down shutting it down and that's it and we're at, oh look at that amount of hard drive space really do you think that's true yeah I, I think that's 100% great. true that I mean I just you know I lucked you know I a lot of things have sort of fallen into place when I've needed them to fall into place like I worked at a I worked at a placement agency like a temp agency getting people jobs and then, because of that, I met somebody who did hiring at Sony Pictures, which is how I got the job at Sony. And then I failed colossally at that job, and then I needed another job. But because I had worked at Sony, and I had done this stuff with these celebrities, I got hired by Planet Out to do these celebrity interview things and everything. I had got, I got a syndicated column with this crazy guy. But because of the, and at the Planet Out launch party, and because I had this syndicated column, I met John McMullen, who offered me an internet radio show that I couldn't do because uh, we, like, we had a conflict, but he remembered me, and then when Sirius was starting OutQ, he called me and asked me if I wanted to have a show. Like, my life has always been that kind of a snowball thing of like this thing. So you've not had long stretches thing. where you felt lost or you, where you felt like you couldn't get arrested or what am mm. I going to do? No. I mean, okay. I, you know, there were a couple of times where, uh, I mean, certainly the time between Sony and Planet Out was a tough time for me because I had sort of exhausted. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my career. I had exhausted being like a temp, you know, it was getting closer to the end of my twenties than the beginning of my twenties. And it's like, how much, you know, how much longer can, you know, can I just sort of fart around until I figure out who I want to be in my life? And, um, you know, and money started getting tight. Like, I almost got to the point of having to ask my parents for money, which I, like, I swore I would never do. And then the planet out thing just sort of landed finally. Um, and, you know, I certainly felt that way a bit when this show got canceled. Like, you know, I don't know what the next thing is going to be, and am I really ready to start doing another thing that I have to explain to people what I do for a living again for the fifth time in a row? Right. But, you know, in some ways, like, yeah, I've had a lot of cutting-edge jobs, and maybe it's maybe just time for one more. Thing. Yeah, why not? Maybe. Um, I don't know if you ever knew this, and I don't think I've ever spoken about it publicly. <sighs> this could be good. After Harrison left, you might know this, John offered me a show. Then why didn't you take it? I did take it. And, and then, then he called back later and said they were going another direction. They had to go with somebody in New York. It was, it was uh, a Frank show. Yeah. It was a heartbreaker. That is a heartbreaker. It was a heartbreaker. I mean, we talked salary. Right. Like, it was on the table. And I said I was, yes. Uh, I always wondered why you didn't get a show. Because you should have had a show. I was heartbroken. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I love Frank. And Frank did a great show. Of course. And I love Frank. Mean, yeah. No, but it was... It was it was, um, yeah, I remember it was a, right around the holiday time and it was getting ready to start and 
I was so excited, and yeah, it was a heartbreaker. That is heartbreaking. Yeah. Dennis, you can't end this on a down I know, I know, I know. And then there was one other <laughs> question that I wanted to ask you. I want to, how did you find out you were, the show, you were, the show was ending? How did you find out? We Email, text, phone call? I got called into a meeting. It's also part of why I think it was our show and not Frank's show, is that, you know, with Frank's show, they would have to flown somebody to LA to do it, but we were local. Uh, no, I, we got an email like the day before, like, oh, can you come and meet with, from our boss? Oh, can you come and meet with us? At the, uh, come in early. And she has kids, so she didn't always like to stay late. I don't blame her. And uh, our show started at 8 o'clock at night. Like, nobody wants to meet with us at 7 p.m., right? Yeah. So we were always trying to find, like, the latest time of the day that she was willing to stay. And then, you know, the, the earliest that we would come in. And But she asked us to come in for, like, an, even for us, an early meeting. I think it was, like, 2 in the afternoon. It was pretty early. So we came. And... I had a feeling the night before, like, mm, I think so. And the worst part about it was we probably did one of the worst shows we've ever done the night before. We had some queen from RuPaul's Drag Race on, and it was a horrible, horrible interview. And some of the listeners had, like, an internet rumor that, like, that was why we got fired, because the our Drag Race interview sucked. I was like, let me tell you something. You know, we've had sucky other interviews over the time. Nobody gets a radio show canceled over one crappy interview right. with one drag queen. Did you hear Amy Sedaris? Yeah, exactly. Did you hear that episode? <laughs> but, um, you know, I would have liked to have gone out on a high note, for sure. Just like this, Dennis. I'd much rather go out on a high <laughs> note. <laughs> so they called you into the meeting and told you? They called, called us in. Who was in the meeting? Three it, of you? It was the two of us, plus like a woman from HR, and our original boss, who wasn't our boss anymore. But like, Dave Graham? Yeah. You know, he knew we were getting the axe and he thought it would sound better coming from him than from someone else. And, I mean, and I, honestly, I appreciate that. You know, we did work there for 12 years. We worked with him for... How long was the meeting? All that time. I mean, it was pretty short. And then did you have to go and do a show? No, no. Well, we... Uh, so, they, it was like, no, they we're just going to run best ups for the rest of the week and then your show was gone. Like, they didn't have a... So you didn't get to do a bye. farewell. And, no. and nor did Frank and Doria. Yeah, but... Which I think is kind of a bummer. I do too. I mean, they... Well, I mean, I'm sure it's because they don't want somebody to go on the air and spend four hours saying fuck serious, whatever. Like, they don't want a problem. Right. I mean, we wouldn't have done that. We would have done solid shows out to the end. We would not have been a problem. Um, but we... I had voiced this special on marriage equality that was airing that weekend. And... I had done all this voiceover stuff, and when they edited it, it was a little short, and so they needed another, whatever, 30 seconds of something. And then we got fired. And I had told the guy who produced it, like, oh, we're coming in for this meeting, and I'll be there early, so find a studio space, and I'll record the last 30 seconds you need to finish your special. And then we got fired. And after that, I went to him, and I said, you know, they're giving us time to clean out our stuff. If you want, I will finish recording that last 30 seconds you need so the special can run because they'd already run promos for it and everything it was a wednesday it was airing on saturday there wasn't enough time to get somebody else to voice the whole thing they couldn't scrap it it couldn't be 30 seconds short and i'm not a monster despite what you've heard and so even though it was really hard and let me tell you something it was hard (laughs) i went in there and i recorded the last 30 seconds they needed for that special it felt like Judy Garland doing Get Happy after MGM had fired her and they made her come back and do so the last bit for Summer Stock. Court, and then on July 34th, those fuckers... I'm sorry, I mean, we're going to need to take that again. Can we go back? 
It was not far from that, really. Like, my voice was really tense, and I didn't have copy written down, so he was, like, feeding me the line, and then I had to remember it and say it out loud, and my brain was running, like, a mile a minute. And where's Romaine at this point? She was upstairs packing her crap in a box. Did you... When people get fired in movies, they always have a brown box. Oh, yeah. I have, like, three of them. I haven't even opened them. Yeah. But then again, when I moved out of L.A., I, like, packed up a bunch of stuff, and then I moved to this farm in Michigan, and then I moved to New York, and then uh, I moved to a couple of apartments, and then I sold my farm in Michigan, and I put a bunch of stuff in storage, and then I bought a house nine years ago, and then when I moved all the stuff out of the storage unit in my house, I discovered there were boxes from L.A. I hadn't unpacked, and I, even though I'd obviously moved eight years earlier, nine years earlier, and uh, opened up the box, and there was unopened mail in there. Like, oh, I'll get around to this. Like, oh, mail came on my last day. I'll just <laughs> drop it in this box. I'll sort it out later. And then, like, nine years later, I find unopened mail. So those boxes will probably remain unopened in the crawl space of my house for quite some time. Yeah, so you didn't, you haven't looked at what you took? No, I don't need it. I, I, I don't um, know what's in there, but I probably don't need it. When I went on strike from Fashion Police, you know, you can't, when you're, you don't leave, you have to, you have to... The last day you're there, you have to act like you're coming back. Right. Like, you know what I mean? So That's I how strike with, yeah. yes. <laughs> So um, a year or two later, one of my friends that still worked there brought me a box of stuff. And it was like peanuts and just like junk or whatever. But there was, I'll show you what was there. Okay. I'm walking across my room. <laughs> the, it was so, it was so sort of ironic in a way, but also I was happy to have it. And I'll let you describe to okay. the people what it is. Um, it's on your like life wall of yeah. all the things you've done. Written. Well, I have a little. I have a little uh, shelves with like little doodads and things and all knickknacks. All right, it's Joan Rivers' book. I hate everyone, starting with me. That's always good advice. I hate everyone except Dennis. This is what she wrote inside. Yes. I hate everyone except Dennis, who I adore, and who is just plain terrific. Love, Joan Rivers. I was, like, happy to have that, even after everything that went down. It was like, yeah, that's cool. So you might have something like that in your box, is my point. Is that a happier note to end on? I don't think we really <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> this podcast, but you know what? <laughs> the podcast can't go on for, like, five days. Like we can't. I can't. If, we're start, if, I'm, if I'm bringing any of my own life to it, we're going to end. It's going to go down. So we got to... We gotta lift it up. Wait, I hope you have a good. This is what happened to wrap this up with something really hilarious because otherwise, I know, it's I'm be sure. like I will. Genesis most depressing. No, Genesis it's all good. Ever. It's not. It's totally not. Why do you love what you do? I love uh, being able to express myself because I'm an egomaniac. But it really is. It is a. I. I mean, it's obviously it's about me because I've. A, erected a throne for myself to sit on but it really is about the people who listen to the show and you know and part of why I wanted to be here and do your podcast is I listen to your podcast I'm one of the people in my car listening your and podcast, that means a lot to me yeah but your podcast means something to me I enjoy it and it's not just because we're friends like I enjoy listening to your podcast but when you do something like this you do it for you for whatever reason, for monetary reasons, or because you want to express yourself, whatever. But, but what's really, that wording of monetary reasons? Yeah. Please go to Dennis's tip jar <laughs> and please give Dennis a tip. Remember, can, he didn't get a serious show. Yeah, you can say it's in memory. <laughs> that would have been if you, Derek's it, depressing interview. Whatever you want. 
please put money in that tip jar. Um, but yes, but it's about the people who listen. And you realize, I think it's a good lesson for anyone, even if they're not doing something in the public eye, is it's important to express yourself fully because you never know who that will benefit. Not just yourself. Because fully expressing yourself tends to benefit you. But you never know when that will benefit other people. Well, especially, and I know this, as listening to other things, sometimes something you see in a movie or something you see on television lands with you at the right time with what you're dealing with or what you're going through. And that's a beautiful thing that happens sometimes with any kind of media. But you could be that thing at that time that sort of makes people feel less alone or makes them, I don't know, it's a, it's a great privilege. It's a great thing. It is. So Derek Hartley, I think we, DHs, I never realized that before. (laughs) I never realized that before. A DH to DH podcast. I know. Thank you for doing the podcast, for, for the, doing the longest ever podcast. Uh, I'm so proud of you guys for making this, um, leap to your own thing. Tell people how they can access it and, and what they need to do to get you every single day. Uh, com. you can sign up on our website. We have a special URL. If you have an iPhone or iTunes, you can add our special URL into your feed. I have the Dennis Anyone podcast in my podcast app on my phone, and I have our show in the feed there, too. Uh, and you can listen to not just our archive shows, but this just happened. We also have the live feed of our show that's in the podcast app as well. So you can tune in right there to whatever the current show is that's playing or download past shows. That's awesome. And, and I went on, uh, without subscribing, there's some stuff available too. Yeah, yeah. we have some we have some free podcast content and stuff. Yeah, sample yeah, stuff yeah. on iTunes. Yeah, yeah. yeah we But did. you should definitely subscribe. Well, I mean, if you want two hours of our nonsense a day, then it's yes. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's more than you could possibly imagine. Has your content changed at all? The show has changed a bit just because... We used to do four hours and people would just sort of float in and out, right? You get into your car and yeah. whatever 20 minutes are playing while you're driving, that's what you hear. With our new show, it's two hours instead of four, but with the two hours, we find people tend to listen from the beginning and listen to the whole thing straight through um, or listen to as much of it as they can until it gets boring. So um, I think So you're that, able to sort of shape it. Yeah. So you shape it in a different way yeah. for sure. Because you don't have to reset things over and over again. Like with this, you don't have to keep telling everyone I'm Derek Hartley, right? Right. Because they started at the beginning, they heard who I am, and you don't have to keep saying, and and we're with Derek Hartley now. Because in traditional radio, you have to do that, because you never know when people are coming in now. So stuff like that has changed, for sure. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I love that you guys are doing it. Give Romaine my love. I will. And um, thank you for doing the podcast. Anytime. And thank you for being my friend for oh, 20 years, at least. Mm. At least. More. More. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. All right. Don't tell anyone I'm 28. Yay. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Derek Hartley. You can check out his show at DerekandRomaine.com. All right. So this happened. I'm in Palm Springs, as I said up front. It's my friend's birthday. And everything's going great. We went to Two Cans last night, which is a sort of drag tiki bar. Well, it's not always drag, but on Sunday nights they have a drag show. And I love a good drag show. And last night we had a drag king. So it was a woman in guy drag. And I like the twist of a drag king, I have to say. It was fun. 
Um, we also got to meet some of the queens, and we had Mc Morgan McMichaels, uh, which sounds like uh, something you would get at McDonald's. Um, and it was a ton of fun. And today we're going to go see London Has Fallen because there are no movies we want to see. Brett and I were, like, searching Fandango for hours, just hoping that everybody wants some would somehow appear. We would hit refresh and refresh, and it just didn't happen. So I think it's London Has Fallen. And you're probably listening at home going, I've seen it. Don't. Stop. We're in. We don't care. We're going to enjoy it. It's what's-his-face from that place. And they might have kettle corn and... We're in. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. <laughs>